unmuting. We'll see how long it takes me to actually get used to that and be able to mute and unmute. If you'll turn with me, and we're going to be re returning back into the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start at verse 13. And it makes sense that after talking about male and female, talking about the institution of marriage, talking about divorce, that Mark would start talking about children. But you know what's striking here is not that he talks about children, but this contrast that he sets up between children and the rich young ruler. And what I would like to ask for you to do right now before we read is just to realize sometimes our familiarity with Scripture causes us to just look over it and not to look at depth, the depths of what God would have us to know from his word. And in fact, I'll just go ahead and say, the rich young ruler in our text this morning, it does not describe him as a ruler or young. That is a collaboration from the gospel of Luke, from the gospel of Matthew together. Matthew says he was young. Luke says he's a ruler. They all say that he was rich, therefore the rich young ruler. But those details are not found in our text. So let's be attuned especially to what the Gospel of Mark would have us to know about this man and his pairing next to the children. Let's read God's holy, inerrant word, starting at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them and laying his hands on them. And laying his hands on them, he blessed them. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. <clears throat> and he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. 
This is the reading of God's holy word, and may he add his blessing to it. We're going to pick up on this story next time, because he's going to continue, and he's going to look at this rich man and this event that happens, and he's going to show that he is just a member of a larger category of people who find it hard to enter the kingdom of God. And actually, the reality is, is that it is impossible by our own strength for anyone, including this rich man or any rich person or any person at all, to enter the kingdom of God by their own strength, by their own doing. But there could be no more important question that you could ask yourself than to go to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get into the kingdom of God? What must I do to be saved? And what we see here is this contrast. We just saw children who received the kingdom, who can't do anything, paired right next to, not by accident, against a man who seemed to have been able to do everything but enter the kingdom of God. So let's look at this. Let's look at receiving eternal life. What must we do? How does it work? Who does it work for? Nothing could be more important for us to ask this question because, and I've probably given you this statistic, you know, a couple times now. It's a statistic that I remember. It's my favorite statistic. It's that 10 out of 10 people die. It's really easy to remember. You can probably share with your friends. I hope you can remember that. How many people die? 10 out of 10. Everyone. Everyone is going to have to stand before God one day. Everyone is going to either find themselves inside the kingdom of God, having eternal life, or outside the kingdom of God and experience God's wrath, God's judgment due to us for our sin, and rightly so. Jesus already talked about the deserving of that and the fate of those people in Mark chapter 9. But here he's addressing someone who comes to him and asks that question. I think the first thing that we see here when it comes to receiving eternal life and looking at the children is it must be <coughs> it must be received as a gift. Eternal life must be received as a gift. Fascinating for me and I'm right now I'm trying to try to that was the first little fill in the blank that's in the back of your bulletin if you're new here. The first point is it must be received as a gift. You know, what often draws me into a passage, especially in Mark, is Mark, unlike any of the other Gospels, at least to this extent, shows the emotions of Jesus. We see his humanity on full display, and it's so clearly articulated for us that Jesus was not some stoic, emotionless, moral teacher. He felt things. 
and his emotions were perfectly aligned with God's values. Emotions for the human being is a good thing if it's in accordance with God's word. And unlike us who often get angry for no good reason, Jesus gets angry for a good reason. And what's the reason that Jesus gets angry in this text? Well, he gets angry because his disciples were restraining people from coming to him. Believers were bringing their children to be blessed by Jesus. This was actually a pretty common practice. Rabbis would bless children. They saw Jesus. They had followed Jesus. They knew of his esteem, and they wanted to bring their children to be blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said and pointed out that they were (coughs) hindering them from coming to him. Why does he tell them? Why does he say that? Why does he get so angry about this? And why are the disciples even to begin with stopping the parents from bringing their children? Well, I think it's something that they've recently learned and something culturally acceptable, which is that children have no value, that they've learned that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The king has no time for the little people. Literally, in this case, the little people Jesus has no time for. And that angers Jesus. And culturally, they had a probably a clearer understanding of children than we do. Fortunately, we see, and most Christians see this, that children are made in the image of God and have dignity and worth no matter what level of contribution they can give to society. The ancient world had a pretty realistic view of children. They saw them as helpless, weak, poor. Why poor? They don't own anything. They don't have anything. It's why in Roman society, that if you did not want a child, you could just go outside the city walls, toss your child, and let them die of exposure. And there's a reason why Christians would take those children and bring them into their home and adopt them. It's because the church has always seen the value of every human life, including children. But it wasn't so in the ancient world, and the disciples were men of their time. They imbibed those same values. And unless we think we're so high and that we this is not a potential issue here, let me tell you a pet peeve of mine. I have a pet peeve. And it's when pastors or people trying to pursue the ministry Treat youth ministry like a stepping stone. That's the first step into their career in which they'll get to the job they really want, which is to preach in front of big people. It's okay to do a poor job because they're children. I mean, how much are they going to really hang on to? It's okay to be inadequate for that position. It's okay to use them and kind of learn the ropes of ministry before you do real ministry. That's a big pet peeve of mine. The other one is the pastor that's more of an academic. 
that doesn't just see children as getting in the way of their ministry, but sees all people as getting in the way of their ministry, that they study the word and they just want to be in God's word, learn more. They love God. But his people get annoying and they interrupt his study and they prevent him from writing books, being a benefit to the wider church. The Lord Jesus Christ does not view any person, child or adult, as a stumbling block to further their ministry, but rather sees the people of God as his ministry. The value of study, the value of teaching scripture is that we would all worship the living God, that we would focus on him. It's not for our self-promotion and it's not to, to give us a bigger ego. Jesus did not see the people like that. And we have an important question to ask ourselves when we're looking at this. Who is he talking about? Who are the people that Jesus sees as his ministry? Who is he here to minister to? Even maybe more controversial, to who belongs the kingdom of God? I was reading uh, some different Baptist authors and saying uh, Craig Blomberg, which is a really good commentator, even though kind of weird name. He spoke about how people use this text in support of infant baptism, but we see neither infants nor baptism. And I'll give him credit. There's definitely no water in this text. But the principle here. I believe actually stands for a very important reason because actually infants are in this text. Luke's account, which is much smaller and is maybe even have been on a different occasion, I'm not sure, records Jesus' same words, but doesn't use the word for child, but uses the word for infants. Really here, it could have been a range of children various degrees, but all children, all needing to be brought by parents in order to come to Jesus, all helpless, all not expressing a faith of their own and their own prerogative in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Alistair Bega, someone I've listened to and has been a great help in so many of my sermons and listening to how he dissects the text. He said, the kingdom belongs not to children, but to such as these. That's true. The kingdom of God does not, he said though, that the kingdom of God does not belong to children, but to such as these. But let's ask ourselves, where does verse, where does to such as these belong the kingdom? Where is that? It's in verse 14, when he said, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such as these belong the kingdom of God. You see, Alistair Begg is true, but it, well, the truth that he says is true of verse 15, not verse 14. Verse 15 does say, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. He takes these children and uses them as a broader category. 
but he talks about the children first. He says that to the children, Pideon, that word is used 12 times in the book of Mark. And every time it refers to literal children of various ages, but all very young. And when he refers to his disciples as children, he uses it with the metaphorical sense and uses a different word in the subsequent section that we'll be looking at next week. To such of these does belong to the children and does belong, in verse 15, to the category which they represent. And I think it is important to ask ourselves, then in what sense do children belong to the kingdom of God? What I'm obviously not saying, and I hope no one hears me to say, so let me just go ahead and nix this in the bud. I'm not saying that everyone does not need to come to a profession of faith. Every believer, to be considered a believer, needs to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that looks like in the natural progression of life is having your mind fully developed, coming to an awareness of who God is, trusting in God, specifically that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, and that we make a profession of faith and commune together as believers at the table. But what we have here is actually something, a pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament and into the New, and I would argue does not change in the New Testament, which is believers have the obligation to bring their children to be a part of the covenant community, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to hold out the promises that God gave to us, that by faith alone we will be saved in Christ alone, that we're to hold that promise out to our children. I would hold, and I cannot argue it from this specific text, that the right that we've been given of entrance into this community is baptism in the New Testament, and that by that, by birthright, the children of believers have a right to belong in this community. I would argue that you cannot find any place in all of Scripture where there's some sort of magical age of accountability, age in which the the Holy Spirit is able to operate on a human heart. Rather, the Holy Spirit we see sometimes works before baptism, sometimes during that moment, sometimes after. The Holy Spirit worked on John the Baptist when he was in his mother's womb. Our hope, and this is the hope for every Christian parent, I think, is that they would grow up learning who God is and maybe never having a conscious moment where they realize that, you know, there was this time when I didn't know Jesus and now I know Jesus. What we pray for as Christian parents is that they would never know a day, always believing even though there was a point in time in which they went from a child of wrath to a child of God. But our conscious apprehension of that very moment is not something we're always aware of. And parents, none of us are aware of that moment, and none of us can cause that moment to happen. We're not guaranteed as children 
that because we bring our parents to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will profess faith one day. We have to be careful. We hold out the promises. We know that this is the normal operating of how the Holy Spirit typically works. But it's not a guarantee. But all of us, like children, as a category in verse 15, all of us have to receive the kingdom in the same way. We have to receive it with nothing in our hands. Do I bring simply to the cross? Do I cling? It has to come to us as a free gift, something that we could not merit and could not earn. And that brings us to the young, rich ruler. And let's just, ref- let's just restrict ourselves to the rich man, which is, by the way, a fact that we don't know at the beginning of the story. We only know it at the end. And the rich man, or really just this man, comes up, and like the children, he's both an individual and also representative of a category. Jesus has this man come to him, and he is sincere. He is urgent. <clears throat> he runs to Jesus, and he asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The second thing I want to know about want you to know about receiving eternal life is it must be received from Jesus. The man, if he had anything right, is he had the right source. Jesus is not only knowledgeable of the way of salvation, but he himself claims to be the way, the truth, and the life in John chapter 14. And notice what he does with this man. He He does an evangelism strategy that we probably are not too used to, but I would love us to become more acquainted with it. He immediately, at the first instance, starts talking to him about God. This man comes to him and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is not correcting him using the phrase good in reference to himself, even though that seems to be the man's takeaway when later he doesn't repeat the mistake and doesn't call him good teacher. He just calls him teacher. That's not the right takeaway. The takeaway is, and what Jesus does immediately, he says, why? Do you call me good? Don't you realize that the term good only applies to God alone? Why is it so important to shift the conversation as quickly as we can as Christians to talk about who God is? It's because the reality is that there's lots of nice people in Powhatan. There's lots of friendly people in Powhatan. There's lots of people that don't really have any sense of need in Powhatan. But they don't know God. Talk to anyone. If they say to you something like, you know, I think I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. And I think that when I die, God is going to see my sincerity 
and reward me for my goodness and I'll go to heaven. I've heard people say that in the church who hear about God every week of thinking, you know, God is, he's a good God and he's a forgiving God. And you know, we got this deal. I sin, he forgives. It's great. But the reality is, is God is not like Santa Claus. That's the God that people think of and believe in in America often. That God is a huggable, lovable, friendly God who, you know, he has a list and checks it twice, but guess what? Everyone gets presents. God is not like Santa Claus. What did this man need to know first and foremost? He needed to know who God was. We need to know who God is. And you know what? Acts 17 shows that when Paul, when he begins his witnessing amongst pagans, he points to this altar, to the unknown God, and he says, let me tell you about the God you don't know, the living and true God. Jesus directs the conversation to God, but he doesn't end there. He doesn't just tell him about God, but he shows him who God is, and he shows him God's standard. Read Psalm 19. What is the way of life? Well, it's the law of God. What does he tell them? The man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you know the commandments. Which commandments? The Ten Commandments. And then he lists out and reads to him the second half. You see, the Ten Commandments, the first four, are all about man's relationship with God, about worship, about adoration, about not giving that worship to others, about worshiping him on one day in seven, about using that name that he's placed upon you and not using it in a way that blasphemes that name, makes light of that name. But the second half of it, the next six commandments, are all about people's relationship to each other. And he lists almost all of them. He lists commandments six, seven, eight, nine. But then, oddly enough, he actually doesn't say the, or he lists off commandment five as well, but he does not list off commandment 10. Do not covet. But rather, he quotes, do not defraud which is a biblical command. It's found in Leviticus 19. I think it's verse 18. I don't have it in front of me right now. But do not fraud is an accurate command. What is he doing here? Why is he showing him the law of God? Well, he's showing him his need. You see, we not must not just receive eternal life as a gift, receive eternal life from Jesus, but it also must be received in view of our need. You see, this man, we're going to see, thinks he's good. But by what standard? Does he not know that the Bible says, 1 John chapter 3, verse I think 6? Don't quote me on that one. 1 John chapter 3, that sin is lawlessness. That sin is defined by breaking God's law. So what does he do? He shows him God's law. And this man, we learn at the end of the story, is a rich man. 
You see, Jesus seems to, and Mark is the only one that includes the do not defraud command that Jesus said. It seems like Jesus, in telling him the way of life, has honed it specifically for this gentleman. Coveting, if you have everything, probably wasn't going to be his problem, at least in the most simplistic reading of the 10th commandment. At least that's the best explanation I could come up with in reading this. Seeing that he is trying to target this man specifically. For what reason? See, the law of God, when it shows us our standard, when it shows us God's standard, and we know that God is good, and especially that God is holy, when we reflect upon his law, we should realize very quickly that we are not. You see, the law of God is to function for the sinner of exposing our evil deeds, of exposing where we fall short, of exposing our inadequacy, our need for a savior. That's how it should function. And if the man had listened to the Sermon on the Mount when he learned that the law of God does not just pertain to actions, but to thoughts, to words, to our affections, our desires, when we realize how deep the law of God goes, it becomes readily apparent that none of us live up to God's holy standard, especially if we know who God is. This man, though, despite being shown the mirror, despite being seeing God's law, ironically, verse 20, he gets pretty excited about this. That's the way of life. I've read my Bible. I've read about the way of life and it being God's law and giving instructions as a guide. And all I have to do is keep it. Well, guess what, Jesus? I've kept these things from my youth. This man does not know his need. And sadly enough, most people, because they don't know God, they don't know their need. Their sins to them are simply mistakes things that they overlook in other people and they expect God to overlook in them. But our sins are not mistakes. We're not just broken people that need to be fixed. We've done evil deeds. We've done what is wrong. And when we read the scripture, we see that God's goodness and love for justice requires him to punish every evil doer. This man was supposed to, at this point, fall on his knees, knees, recognizing his need, and see that he could not possibly do enough to answer his original question. He could not possibly do enough to earn eternal life. And what is Jesus' response to this? The man has not seen his need. So Jesus forces him to see it. Verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Before we get into this, 
Do you love people? Do you love people more than your comfort? Here's a quick assessment of that. Are you willing to make yourself uncomfortable in telling them who God is when you know they don't believe in God? Do you love people enough to show them their need for a savior? It's one of the most most uncomfortable things in the world to do is to tell people that they're wrong. I don't like being told I'm wrong. And neither does anyone else. You know what it requires to tell people that they're wrong? Requires you of you? Is that you love them. And I'm so thankful that receiving eternal life is not based on my ability or my merit in the instance of being able to love people enough because I fail so often. I don't love people the way I should do. I don't love God as much as he deserves to be loved. You don't receive eternal life by being loving and kind because you can't be loving and kind enough. Does that make sense? Do you understand? Do you comprehend this? Jesus shows this rich man his need when he tells him he lacks one thing. And where my mind goes when I hear this one thing is what we need to realize is what he's showing him in this command is that fourth blank, that it must be received because it is impossible to achieve. It must be received as a gift because it's impossible for a human being to achieve it. And Jesus exposes this to him saying you lack one thing, and he gives them two commands that fit together. I tend to focus on, in my mind, I'd say, you lack one thing, go and sell all you have and give to the poor. That's where my my mind focuses on. I zero in on it. But did you notice the second command? And follow me. What he's asking for is repentance and faith. The command's actually the same for everyone. Even though everyone sins and the things that they're going to be turning away from differs from individual to individual. This man needs to turn away from his love of money that inhibited him from his love of God. He actually did break the 10th commandment. He desired his wealth. His heart affections were set on his wealth and not on following God. He said he was willing to do anything to to merit eternal life, but the reality was is he wasn't. Why? Because of the greatness of his wealth. You see, this one thing that he lacked was an impossible task for him in his own person. Not that it's impossible to sell all your possessions. But you know what is impossible? To change your heart. To change your affections. To change your love for money. And have that changed into a love for God. Jesus does not give this command to sell everything and to give it all to the poor to everyone. He tells Zacchaeus to sell half his stuff. And follow after him. With Zacchaeus, 
willingly does. Why? Because he wanted and he desired to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Christian, we're told, when, the, when Jesus turns to his disciples, he tells every Christian that if you want to be a follower of him, this is Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 37, he called the whole crowd to his, and his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels, for the gospels in the sense of the good news, will save it. This man sought to save his life, and he did not. He could not. Why? Because he did not recognize his need. I was reminded of this recently. I was uh, having a car ride with Tim, one of the church members here at Evergreen, and I had a kind of a bronchial cough. I was having this deep cough, and I'm just waiting for it to go away. He said, you know, that sounds like a really deep-seated cough. And he asked me questions. Is, you know, are you coughing up? Is it yellow? Is it different color? And I said, no. And he goes, okay, that's good. But you know, that's not just going to go away. And that could turn into pneumonia. There was a moment, I had the same cough. But there was a moment in which I recognized I was sick. And where I had no desire to go to the doctor before, all of a sudden, I was like, Hallie, maybe we should schedule an appointment. That's what loving sinners looks like. It looks like showing them they have a need, telling them, first of all, there is a doctor. And second of all, he has the cure. That's what our evangelism should look like. And notice that Jesus, this man, goes away sorrowful. And not only that, but verse 22 starts off, ESV says disheartened by saying he went, away, and he went away sorrowful. This word disheartened could be modifying the sorrowful, the kind of sorrow he had. But typically this word is used for shock, that he's appalled. This man, when he was told to sell all of his stuff, the stuff he loved, he knows how rich he is. He knows how much stuff he is. He's appalled that Jesus would ask him. He is absolutely shocked that Jesus could ever ask him to sell away, to give away all of his stuff. And he knows what he's giving up. And he walks away sorrowful. Notice successful evangelism does not mean winning people to Christ because we can't do it. It has to be a gift. It has to be received from Jesus, not us. It has to be we have to have to be recognition of our need, which we can't cause other people to see. And it's impossible for us to achieve, and it's impossible for them to achieve. Successful evangelism in this case meant this man walking away sorrowful. But you know what? That's this old man's only hope is that he was sorrowful. Our prayer for this man, we don't know what came of him, but our prayer for this man. And our prayer for everyone we speak to needs to be the same. That if they don't, if they walk away from us, not following the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be sorrowful over their sin. That they would know what they're leaving behind and not following Jesus. 
and we pray that that gnawing, agony, shame of not following the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that they're not going to inherit eternal life if they don't, that's the only hope this man had. Is that where you are at? Do you see yourself? Do you see your need? Do you see who God is, that he's not Santa Claus? He's the living and true God. And he loves sinners. And he loves them enough to call them to repentance and to faith in him as their only hope in life and death. If anything should convince us that it's impossible for us to receive eternal life without God's help, it should be the fact that Jesus came in the first place. Why did Jesus have to come? He had to come in order that any sinner would be saved. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continually give us not just grief and not just sorrow over our sins, but godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Let us not have the grief of the world where we feel bad over our mistakes, but not bad enough to turn in our need and our helplessness like little children, weak and unable to support ourselves and to lean fully on the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, to be faithful witnesses to the true and living God. Help us to be active and supporting of missions because there are places, even in Powhatan and in this world, where worship does not. Lord, may we constantly be held by your Holy Spirit, the goodness of God. And that we would love him and seek to worship him and see other people come to worship him. And Heavenly Father, when we see in our lives and we become grief and guilt-stricken when we don't love enough, when we don't love you enough and we don't love each other enough, Lord, may we be comforted by the promise of the gospel that anyone who trusts in Jesus will be saved by Jesus. Anyone who has had Jesus' blood and looks to him alone for salvation as a child looks to his parents alone and clings to them for help and dependence, Lord, we confess that in our sins and our neediness, we are so thankful that we have a God who's paid for all our sins. And to him, we owe everything. We love you, Lord, and we praise your holy name. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we're going to respond in worship. And the 